Listener Production. Hello, you're listening to The Briefing. And if you are a fan of camp costumes, terrible tunes and getting up at 5am on a Sunday morning to watch the world's longest running song contest, well, you are in luck because said song contest is happening this weekend. That's right, it's Eurovision. Promise me it's going to be that there is our very own entry into Eurovision, the pop metal band Voyager from Perth. They're going to be competing for a spot in the final, which will be airing this Sunday. Hey, this is the first year, the first time, actually, since we entered the competition in 2015, that our Eurovision entry is not a soloist belting a ballad. How will Voyager go? The fact that they've got a loyal fan base here already, I reckon is going to mm. make a huge difference. And the song is catchy AF. I love it. And they're brought, they're bringing out like a 1983 Mazda um, to really hook into that sort of Kita 80s vibe. Yeah, that's Miff Warhurst, who's one half of our Eurovision commentary team, talking about the competition there. And if you love Eurovision or you don't know what Eurovision is, you don't know what I'm talking about, then definitely stay tuned for our chat with Miff, who will be commenting the competition, as I said, for your viewing pleasure on SBS. But first, let's go to the headlines for May 11. I'm joined by Rihanna Patrick. The ACT's top prosecutor has told an inquiry into the handling of the Brittany Higgins rape trial that he was worried about political pressure not to prosecute the case. Some of the questions in my mind hypothetically were, was this, a, was this at the time a government minister exerting pressure through the federal commissioner onto ACT policing to make a matter go away? That's Shane Drumgold. He says he was under pressure from police not to prosecute the case. And when asked why he didn't want police to contact Senators Michaelia Cash and Linda Reynolds specifically, he responded that he was concerned there was a connection between federal interference with ACT policing, Jan. Yeah, so this is uh, an inquiry that's being heard by the um, ACT Civil and Administrative Tribunal. I should say straight off the bat that both Linda Reynolds and Michaelia Cash have denied uh, that there was any kind of political interference um, in this trial. This is, of course, the trial of Bruce Learman, who was accused of raping Brittany Higgins in Parliament House in 2019. He's maintained his innocence. There have been no findings against him. Learman and Higgins, this is why Senator Reynolds and, and uh, Michaela Cash's name has come up, is because Learman and Higgins both worked for Minister Reynolds at the time of the alleged assault. This whole inquiry was sort of sparked because of a letter that Shane Drumgold had written to the chief of um, the AFP. This was in November 2022, basically saying that he felt under pressure from police not to prosecute the case and that he was concerned that the pressure on police was coming from the Commonwealth, basically. Uh, so so that's what this inquiry was sort of set up to find out. And this is this is really the crux of it here, what Shane Drumgold has been saying. The opposition will deliver its budget reply today with Middle Australians the focus. So if you have a typical family with three kids, uh, they're paying an extra $25,000 in costs in their mortgage, in their energy costs and in other costs. And this is not a budget for them. That's Angus Taylor there, the shadow treasurer. And he claims hardworking Aussies will be forced to pay higher taxes and interest rates to fund things like an increase to job seeker. He'll also say many of the budget promises will keep inflation soaring and Jen, there's new figures showing that we are slowing down on our spending. Is that something that you're finding as the cost of living goes up? I mean, I am personally definitely slowing down on my spending. Um, and, and I think that's 
clearly <laughs> the figures that you've you know mentioned show that that's happening across the board um you know millions of australians are, are, are have a mortgage and when you have sort of unprecedented rate rises eventually that is going to start happening the issue is that um i mean i guess the discrepancy here between taylor and jim chalmers who's the labor treasurer is that chalmers budget was really one for particularly the people who are doing it really tough. So the people on payments, the people who might already be receiving welfare, people who might be on sort of slightly lower income. And Angus Taylor here is focusing on, I guess, the middle Australians, you know, mortgage holders, your sort of typical mum and dad might not be in the lower income bracket, but still, again, given sort of these unprecedented rate rises, doing it um, particularly tough as well. Queensland's historic path to treaty legislation has passed the state's parliament. Milestone today, um, our, the last hundred years, First Nations people have been fighting for a uh, treaty. Activist Grayson Smallwood there. Now, the bill provides the framework for a three-year truth-telling inquiry and then after that, uh, a treaty could then be entered into between First Nations people and the state government. So basically this is, could sort of lead to changes in how Queensland teaches Australian history in schools um, and sort of start discussions about handing back sacred land or perhaps changing um, certain names of places as well. Yeah, Jan, it's, as they said, historic because um, while this bill is co-designed, it was also the first in Australia to be written by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. And what this uh, legislation allows now that it's uh, the bill's been passed is the forming of this treaty institute, which will then be the body that will start the formal truth-telling and healing process, um, which will, as you said, there last for sort of the next three years. Um, but that uh, inquiry will allow Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, but also non-Indigenous Queenslanders to also be a part of that truth-telling process. So this is kind of the next step, um, I guess, in that path to treaty that Queensland is taking. Yeah. And, you know, there are other states as well. Victoria also has a sort of a truth-telling commission as well that they've established um, in the hope of a, of a possible treaty as well. So something the states are moving forward with. The AFL will find out by July 17 if it can push ahead with the Tasmania Devils as the name of the league's new 19th team. The naming pathway has been a little murky with Warner Brothers holding the trademark for its Looney Tunes character Taz and it's since been revealed that IP Australia will hand down its decision and settle copyright matters in about two months. Jan, I don't know what else you would call an AFL team that comes from Tasmania if it can't be the Tassie Devils. Well, you'd have to pull out of the competition. I'm personally deeply offended that Warner Brothers holds the IP to the term Tasmania Devils. You know, that, that feels, that feels deeply wrong to me. It does, but are we surprised? (laughs) No, I guess I'm not surprised. I guess I'm just disappointed. That's, that's, that's probably what it is. But also, I mean, it doesn't have the same ring as like maybe um, other things that Tasmania is kind of famous for, like the Tasmanian Auroras kind of doesn't have that sort of feel to it. And I thought it would be interesting to have a team called the Tasmanian Duck Mofos <laughs> <laughs> after the arts festival. Now there is an idea. And the Duck Mofos <laughs> have run out onto the field. That's not Sounds bad. Sounds amazing. It's not bad. I like it. All right, Rihanna, we'll catch you soon. Up next, we're going to Europe. Not really. We're going to Eurovision.
Let the Eurovision Song Contest begin! We are talking about the world's largest song contest and which has been your favourite entry into said song contest? Was it Was it the OG, Guy Sebastian? Was it Dami Im who came second with the sound of silence? I'm sorry, that is a banger. That was a banger. Was it Jess Malboy? Was it Kate Miller Heidke? If you don't know what I'm talking about, you've got no idea. If you've never even heard these tunes, I'm talking about Eurovision. Oh, get on it. It is so much fun. This year it is happening in Liverpool, England. And here, but there on the ground, to tell us more is our favourite Australian Eurovision commentator, Miff Warhurst. Mate, you are in Liverpool. I apologise. That was <laughs> absolutely the incorrect accent there. I'm so sorry. Uh, what is the vibe like on the ground? I am loving Liverpool. I lived in London for a couple of years and I travelled through on the train and I sort of stopped for a bit but never really got a sense of the city. And Liverpool is a very, very proud uh, I think originally working class city with some amazing buildings and over the last maybe 20 years they've just really upped their game in terms of celebrating the fact that, that there's a lot of great music that's come from here, there's a lot of arts and culture and there's real history as well. So I've been kind of blown away by this place to be honest. The historic, there's the modern, there's the water, there's the Mersey which is obviously a very famous water area and, of course, the Beatles. Um, I haven't seen any Beatles, but I've seen everything else and I'm loving it. <laughs> <laughs> well, if there's one thing I know about the Brits, it's that they freaking love Eurovision. How are they embracing the competition there in Liverpool, especially given because actually technically Ukraine won the competition last year, so it should have been held in Ukraine and we all know, unfortunately, the events unfolding there at the moment. So. Yep. How's the embrace of the competition been? The Brits have absolutely embraced this. It's actually quite amazing and I think they're really proud to host it for Ukraine and you get that real sense um, they've put everything at it. This, this is not like a kind of ad hoc last-minute style Eurovision. It's probably one of the best stages I've ever seen. It's beautiful. The venue is really schmick and gorgeous and the whole city's turned out. There's huge parties everywhere. It's really lovely and I think it's because there's that spirit, that sense of spirit and camaraderie with Ukraine because obviously they can't hold that competition and UK came second last year, which is their highest placing in absolutely years and years and years. So there's a real sense of pride that that, that they're back on top, but also that they're, I guess, holding the hand out of friendship to Ukraine. And I get that sense in the town. People are really pleased and the themes are united by music and obviously that's, I guess, what they're doing. And that's what Eurovision has always done is united countries. That was the original point of Eurovision. It was was to be about uniting countries in Europe post the war. And this is a real indication that they're continuing to do that. I'm, I'm really impressed. Hey, we've sent Voyager this year. Okay, so wow, wow, wow. This is slightly left of centre for us because we usually send, you know, people who can belt out the ballads. Voyager, I think, is like a pop metal, progressive metal band. 
Um, yeah. What do you reckon? What do you reckon about our entry? Have you spent much time with them? And what's your vibe on the tune? It's what they call synth metal. I think synth pop metal, and it's really grown on me. They are delightful human beings, all of them. They're so nice, and they're just a joy to be around. And they've got experience, like they've got the chops. They've been doing this for twenty years. They've also got a huge market already existing in Europe, and I think that might work to our advantage, given everyone else can vote. Australians can't vote for themselves in Eurovision. If you've watched, you know that that's the case. The fact that they've got a loyal fan base here already, I reckon is going to make a huge difference. And the song is catchy AF. I love it. And they're they're bringing out like a 1983 Mazda um, to really hook into that sort of Kita 80s vibe. I think given the semifinals this year are judged by the general public, no jury votes in the semifinals this year. And you know what the general public love? They love something wacky. They love something that's got, you know, something else going on. It's not just a perfect pop tune. I reckon they've got every chance to go through to the final. It's not fair. They're they're nice and they're talented. They've got it all. I hate them. You know what else is not fair? The lead singer's incredibly luscious hair. Luscious hair, I, yeah, it's, it's so good, and it's it's like a thick lion's mane. And even in in real life, it looks like that. Like that's not that's not a muck around hairstyle. He's not faking no. it. There's no wigs. There's no hair pieces. It's all his. And um, you know, every man is probably incredibly envious of that at this point. Um, every woman is incredibly. I'm. He's got better hair than me. For sure. I know, I know. I want some hot Eurovision guys because you've been doing this for a few years now. I know over mm. 20, 2020 and 2021, sadly, the coronavirus put a spanner in the works, but you've gone to a whole bunch. Um, tell mm. us tell us something we didn't know about Eurovision. Tell us something about, you know, something you've picked up along the way that shocked you, surprised you, made you very mad. Nothing shocks me after a couple of years doing Eurovision because you get to see absolutely everything it's, it's like everything turned up to 11, you know, the old Spinal Tap turned it up to 11. This is Eurovision. Mm. It's just so bonkers you can't be shocked by anything. What's always amazed me is the half-time acts. Like, you know, the year we had Madonna who turned up because she's American too. She doesn't really get the importance of Eurovision and she sort of turned up and I love Madonna, don't get me wrong, I adore her. But she sort of turned up and I think she thought it was just something she could do and it would be amazing publicity but I don't think she realised the kind of gravity of it and she did this show and and it just, to be honest, it wasn't wasn't as great as I wanted it to be because I adore Madonna and I love her attitude Mm. and I love who she is and I love her unapologetic self. So, funnily enough, I <laughs> you can't go to the toilet during the broadcast usually oh, yes. because because we're five stories up in scaffolding essentially. You've got to climb down scaffolding and there's never a toilet close by. But I will tell you, Madonna's set was not very good. So I, it's the first time I've ever done a wee during the Eurovision broadcast. I thought, nah, I'm climbing down the scaffolding during this. I'm going to go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. You know what? There are all these really weird rules, actually, when the broadcast is happening. Like you have to – I remember because I went to Eurovision in in, when it was in Ukraine in 2017 and you had to sit down and you couldn't move from the seat. And the one thing that shocked me the most about my time at Eurovision was that I got shushed at Eurovision by someone sitting next to me in the auditorium. 
Oh yeah, God. I was like singing along with the track and somebody turned around and they shushed me. Oh, look, Eurovision fans are harsh. If you step outside the boundaries, um, it's like sports fans for music. They've got a lot of rules and regulations. You know, there's really hardcore sports fans who know all the facts and figures. They're here at Eurovision, but it's just about Eurovision. So, yeah, there's a lot of people with that kind of attitude around here. You can't step out of the boundaries. But <laughs> you should have shushed them back, Jan. You just should have because Eurovision is actually about, and this has, I guess, always been the appeal, it's about celebrating who you are. It's about being who you want to be. It's about having no limits musically because, let's be honest, a lot of the songs are just bonkers and ridiculous. The other question that we always get asked, even though we've been in the competition for some years now, is why is Australian Eurovision? So Nathaniel <laughs> Warhurst, make the case for the rest of the world as to why mm. not only are we in Eurovision but why we deserve to be in Eurovision. We are entitled. It is our right to be in Eurovision. Go. Well, to be honest, SBS has been broadcasting Eurovision. This is the 40th year. That's a long time for a network to be behind something. But I think it's it's a lot deeper than that and I, and I do get why people do question because we're not in Europe. But then there's other countries that also aren't in Europe. We have Israel, we have Azerbaijan, we have lots of countries that aren't necessarily technically in Europe but they've joined in on the fun for many years. So the fact that we have that history, that broadcasting history, but I remember, you know, like when I was a kid growing up, I grew up in a place called Muldura, Sunraysia, small country town called Redcliffs, which was predominantly a migrant community. And all the families there would watch Eurovision because it allowed them, you know, think about the time pre-internet. It allowed them a real-time event that they could talk about with family back home, whatever country mm. they came from. And it, it was a common bonding thing, you know, like there was no internet. We couldn't communicate the way that we, phone calls were expensive. So when Eurovision was on, it was, it was like a religion where I grew up, you know, it was really important. And it was a real way for people to connect with their home country and, and talk to their families about it, or, you know, feel like they were part of something still. And, and, and to me, that's, that's the thing. Australia is made up of people from so many different places. We're not just a homogenous group and mm, Eurovision mm. is is representative of that. And I think because of that, we deserve to be in it because it really allowed people to be part of something on a global scale when there wasn't that access. Australia was so far away, but it was really special to the families that, that I knew around yeah. me and it was really important and it was an event. And I think the way the younger generation have embraced it now is quite different. I think we embrace it in a in a different way because, you know, we've got the internet. We know what's going on around the world these days. But it's a similar sense of of joy and abandon and a connection with the rest of the world that I think Australia's always had. And there's something really lovely about that. But look, there is great love for Australian artists because we always bring it, like we really go hard because, we, you know, we're very competitive for such a small country. We go really, really hard. And, look, we may never win the public vote, and I will happily say that. We probably never will. We're giving it a go and, and I just think there's so... We're so multicultural in Australia and, we, we you know, so many of us come from somewhere else. I, I just think... I think we deserve it, to be honest. I think we bloody deserve it too. Go us, go you, have the best time for the finals. I'll be watching for sure in my home, in my pyjamas with my one-year-old son. <laughs> Not as camp or as hugely uh, party-filled as I'd like, but fun nonetheless. So thanks so much for joining us, Miff. 
Oh, thank you, Jan Fran. We miss you over here. Oh, that was Miff Warhurst speaking to us from Liverpool, England, um, where she is lucky enough to be at the Eurovision Song Contest. I wish I was at the Eurovision Song Contest, but that's okay. I'm going to be watching it from my house. Not exactly the same vibe. Um, You should too this weekend if you're not up to much because it is so much fun. Listener.